Especially as a founder, you know, you're firefighting all the time. Um, every, if you're doing it right, you're consistently the most incompetent person in the role in your company. <laughs> like nothing was going well and I felt completely like powerless and lost in every aspect of my life. Welcome to Vulnerable, the Founders Mental Health Podcast, powered by Founders Taboo. I'm your host, James Roycroft Davis, and I'm going to sit down with founders and investors from all over the startup ecosystem to get vulnerable so we can finally break down the stigma attached to talking about your mental health as a founder. Whilst I've got your attention, this podcast does not grow without our amazing listeners subscribing to it. So please press the subscribe button now. It takes five seconds and I promise you we will not disappoint with what's coming up next. I'm going to proceed this episode with a bit of a warning that it contains some very graphic references to suicide, suicide ideation, and it could be quite distressing. But Costa Kolav is one of the most intelligent and uniquely brilliant founders you will ever listen to. He's a founder of Caliper, a product specialist, a self-taught engineer by trade, but is a serial young entrepreneur who gets you thinking an immigrant who was brought up with very entrenched values around hard work and intellectual curiosity. But it's this intellectual curiosity which led Costa to realize he was very different at university. And the exploration as to why he was different led him down a very difficult path through depression. He talked incredibly openly about his journey with his mental health, how it's transformed him as a human being, but actually caused him a lot of pain. However, he's building Caliper. He's raising tons of money. Not that that means a huge amount, but he's doing it. Please listen very carefully to this episode because there are wisdom and knowledge gems throughout. So, welcome to Vulnerable, Costa Kolev. Let's kick the shit off. Sounds great. Let's make it happen. Oh, so much crisper. <laughs> Listeners must be thinking, what the fuck are they talking about? We've actually just changed rooms. Yeah. Um, Welcome to my home. You're now... <laughs> I know. Welcome to your humble abode. Absolutely yeah. wonderful. Um, Kosta Kolev. Kolev? Kolev? Kolev, yeah. Kolev. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, James. Thank you for having me. Um Number one question needs to be asked is, how are you? I'm doing great today, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for asking. How are you, sir? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, just back from holiday? Yeah, just been to the Maldives, which um, wasn't actually all over my link, my social media or LinkedIn. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, no, we're doing good. We're doing good. Um, everyday stress and strain of being a founder, really. Are you on the right path? Are you doing the right thing? This kind of shit. Yeah. Um, the eternal questions. Yeah, exactly. Where I'd like to start with most podcasts I've ever done, actually, including the ruts, everything that I've done, has, is get to know you and what makes you you. Deep. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get deep. Um, talk about Costa growing up. Like, I see there seems to be an interesting trend that I've picked mm. up with founders. Yeah. We're a bit weird. 
course. Are you weird? A hundred percent. But I think weird is wonderful. <laughs> Talk to me about Costa growing up. Um, so quite, I guess, a, to some extent, a conventional immigrant upbringing. Um, I was born in Bulgaria. Um, my parents moved to the UK when I was about sort of like five, six years old. Um, they originally came here for only a couple of years um, to pay off some kind of like business loans and just, you know, basically get, get a little bit of a accelerated earning um, so they could like come back home to Bulgaria and, and build a better life for themselves. Sort of six month visa got turned into an 18 month visa. Amazing. It turned into like sort of them living here for two and a half years. Well, at that time I was actually living home with my grandparents. And before we knew it, we we're like, okay, well, my parents are already kind of living here. It's probably good for me to move over as well. So in the earliest days, I had this like, I guess to some extent, sad experience of not really quite being close with my parents as I think I would have liked. But at the same time, got to spend like an amazing amount of time with my grandparents who are just both like, you know, unfortunately they've both passed away, but they were incredible people and a huge influence on my life. Um, so yeah, so that was, I guess, like me in Bulgaria growing up and living with my grandparents for the majority of the time. And then, yeah, I came to the UK. Um, it was an interesting time to be in the UK for sure. Um, I think in sort of like populist media at the time, the narrative was uh, Eastern Europeans coming here to steal our jobs. Um, so landing in kind of like working class East London, you can imagine that there were some interesting conversations that happened in the playground, um, a lot of which, which I guess I can understand now, but at the time I felt, uh, you know, quite just confused by the lack of warmth and welcomeness and in fact quite quite the opposite that I experienced in my, my early years in the UK. Um, but but yeah, I can I can kind of like go on for quite a bit. But what what, what version of the story do you want to do you want to hear? No, I want to know the like the real version of the story, basically. Oh, um, the real version of the story. Yeah. What what makes you you? Because look, you've what this is your with Caliper. This yeah. is your third or fourth startup. Maybe even more. I'm not Maybe sure. Maybe even mate. more. Who, right? Who's yeah. counting? No, no, <laughs> no. I kind of I'm up to four unofficial, yeah. but um. There's a cert you're a certain type of person to do that. For sure. I think I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, right? Um, and I'm a, I'm a fairly reflective person. Yeah, I, uh, I think that like feedback loops and reflections are great because like, especially as a founder, you know, you're firefighting all the time. Um, every, if you're doing it right, you're consistently the most incompetent person in the role in your company, <laughs> because as the company's growing, you need to change how you're operating, right? From you know handling all the details when you're like a two-person team to then all of a sudden you know managing twenty people and make, helping other people make decisions as opposed to making decisions yourself and being very selective about which decisions you're making. And so you kind of go through this whole process of firefighting all the time and always being alert and a little bit insecure and imposter syndrome and you know all these things that we've talked about uh, you know in previous conversations. But I think what's really fascinating about the sort of the journey of a, a founder is that I think everyone can be entrepreneur, but not everyone should be an entrepreneur. Um, and I think that that's probably quite a controversial statement. Expand on that. <laughs> yeah, as yeah. it's obviously controversial. <laughs> um, hopefully, I won't, I, won't, I won't get into trouble for this. But I think I don't think you will. No, fascinating. <laughs> I, I just think that it is. Everyone thinks about entrepreneurship in terms of what they want, but no one is prepared to think about what they're willing to give up, give up in order of what they want. Mm. And I think that largely entrepreneurship is about taking calculated risk and making sacrifices. 
and being able to be long-term greedy. Or at least that's the way that I like to play the game, right? Mm. Different people play the game differently. I think what I like to be is be long-term greedy and really focus on building on the right principles with the right people, doing things the right way for great outcomes in kind of like 10 to 20 years time, not in the short term. And I think that whole delayed gratification thing as a, like, a working class immigrant was just something that was instilled at me at such a young age. Because uh, my parents moved back to, to Bulgaria recently, but, but I ended up having a conversation with my mother. And she was kind of like, as she was packing up, she, she found like journals of when my parents would be first arrived in London. They were, I think, living in um, Northwest somewhere. I want to say like Finchley. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a notebook where their weekly expenditure was 38 pounds for food. Um, so, you know, they'd go to Tesco and like, you know, that, that's everything that, you know, a grown man and woman, you know, ate for the whole week. And obviously, you know, this is like 2002. So um, your purchasing power has changed a little bit. But I think the amount of kind of what my parents put on the line in order to kind of like, you know, create a life here, I think just growing up, seeing them hustle hard and really, um, you know, go for a lot of shit as immigrants just to try and provide a better life for themselves, it really does... I don't know, give you a little bit of extra hunger and grit to push through. Mm. And I think just combining some of those things together in terms of really thinking about, you know, how hard are you prepared to push, push and how hard you're prepared to put things online in terms of sacrifices. I think those are like the real things that are really quite interesting about people that, that go into this line of work that we are in. Mm. Okay. That's a very, very good insight into you. Let's Let's go back to... You growing up, most probably most knows. When did you, when did you think there's something different about me in the way I think? Are we talking school? Are we talking like I'm kind of having a chat with these people and yeah. it's not really resonating with me? I think I first discovered entrepreneurship in university, and I think. That was that was the first moment when I really I think connected with with someone like oh my god this is these are my people this is my tribe really and I think I grew up most of my life incredibly lonely um, because you you could never quite connect with people um, in the sense that being not having English as your first language not having the same kind of like cultural context in terms of you know like S Club Seven I know that's like a a band that everyone of a certain age would know that's within kind of like my demographic. I had no idea who they were when I first came into this country. <laughs> and so not being able to jump into the banter as a teenager at like the school playground was, you know, a bit of a head scratcher. Um, and also I think we uh, sort of both me and my co-founder, James, I guess, we, we both kind of were brought up in a very working class part of London. Um, and as a part of that, I guess, there were very few people who had, I guess, like real like deep intellectual curiosity to like go down the path of university and to like really try and, you know, just push push themselves from like an intellectual point of view. There were like great athletes and there were like great people who, you know, could do lots of different things. But academically, there just weren't that many people that were, I'd say, deeply curious. And for me, I had this like really interesting moment where I, I think the first time I experienced real depression was actually university and entrepreneurship in some way was was like the saving grace that pulled me out of that abyss. And it's because I kind of had this... Sorry. Sorry. Why, why did entrepreneurship do that? Because I, I found my tribe. Right. I think I spent all this time learning to be a social chameleon, 
of like trying to like navigate from different social circles and different social groups to try and really understand where I fit in. And a lot of it was also like a protection mechanism of like not getting beaten up <laughs> as well um, as, a, uh, as a kid. Um, and I think I had this promise with me where, you know, my parents came here saying that, you know, you get a degree from like the UK uh, and it's recognized, you know, it's worth something. You can, you can build a better life for yourself. So I had this narrative that came from my parents. I had this narrative that came from my teachers. I had this narrative that came from my grandparents. And I live at university and I'm like, well, this is shit. Mm. No one really cares about learning here. Um, all the professors are here to really, you know, bolster their own research. They're not really here to teach. They're much more excited about the research that they're doing. Um, most of my other peers are really just excited in the social life of um, kind of like being a student rather than actually learning. And also I kind of like found that first year of the curriculum quite easy because I studied engineering and like year one was like a level set of let's get all these international students on the same platform and then let's, let's you know, take things up in like year two. And so I had all of these expectations built up in my head and then I arrived and I'm like, actually, I, I thought that university was going to be a place to like, have, you know, this like intellectual paradise where I get to like really explore deep and interesting ideas. I get to learn a lot more. And it was just, wait, hold on. The reality is actually completely different. And I think that led me down a really kind of like sad path where I was like, well, maybe there's something wrong with me because everyone's told me that I'm supposed to be happy now, that this is supposed to be my home. And I feel the furthest away from home. Mm. Um, and that was really tough. Um, and it wasn't until just sort of stumbling into a couple of friends who took me to a hackathon that I was like, wait, that there's people that are prepared to give up a weekend to build some like stupid idea and a prototype and then like pitch it in front of investors. Like, what is this world? I love all these weirdos. This is great. And then, you know, 10 years later, this is, this is I guess, been my life. Um, are you introverted or extroverted? We had this conversation actually over coffee just now. Yeah. I think it's a really hard one to answer. I think I've potentially acclimatized myself to be more extroverted when I need to. Mm. But I'm, I'm, I'm really just a nerdy kid on the inside. I get obsessed about like little intricate details that most people find boring. So, so I'd say that's more of an introverted Give trait. Give me an than, example. Um, <laughs> What's an example? Um, at the moment, I'm redoing my balcony and I have... I saw that. There's a load yeah. of tools out there. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I've just ordered some wood from B&Q and I've actually designed everything on Figma in terms of a calculation of how much wood I need to, uh, you know, order, where I need to make the cuts, what do I do with the spares, just like an obscene amount of detail just because it's fun. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, that we are in many senses very similar, in many other senses, completely the opposite. <laughs> I'm very, very I just non-detailed or orientated. Anyway, <laughs> let's go back into you being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, hackathon, you find your tribe at uni, as you said. Mm. Um, when did you leave uni? So I guess my experience with university was interesting. I stayed for the first year. I was promised that second year would be better. I didn't feel like second year was better at that point. I'd already started my first company. So this is foodie, right? Yeah, that's the one. Um, so at that point, I kind of dropped out. And uh, yeah. Um, when you're saying you dropped out, you've obviously got traditional parents clearly mm. instilled in you. Yeah. That, no, you need to learn. You need to have this almost um, vociferous desire to to take in information 
Did they not turn around and go, Costa, what the fuck are you doing? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think for... Well, actually, no. I... It's a really interesting question because I think they definitely had their doubts. But one thing that I guess I, did, I didn't quite mention is that I also started working incredibly young. Um, so my first job was when I was 15. And by the time I got to university, I'd already kind of like been working full time. I got in this weird position where I... Um, got a job cleaning toilets for the Olympics. And then in the end, because I kind of knew my way around computers and admin, I somehow ended up managing a team of 150 people um, and got like a, you know, like a 40K salary, um, which for like an 18 year old is like... That's big money. That's, yeah. <laughs> I bought myself a MacBook. <laughs> uh, I, I put a whole bunch of money into savings. You know, it was, it, was, it was really quite impressive. But I guess I came into university with a little bit more, shall we say, like experience in terms of at least work. Um, and so I think that, again, sort of like created a little bit of a contrast. Um, so, so yeah, I guess that whole kind of like journey for me, I was never really afraid. Like my parents could always see that I've always been hardworking. And I think it was like they, they didn't like the strategy, but they knew that the inputs were strong. Yeah. And I guess what's, what's really strange is like, you know, you, you came to my apartment. It's like, oh, you know, like this is a nice place. I'd say that. About two years ago when I bought the place, my, my dad um, came in and, and helped me lay the floors. Um, and I think it was probably like the first time that we had like, cool, I was very worried about you. But now that I see that you've bought a home and it's actually a nice home and like, you know, you're, it was kind of like, you know, we were like men seeing eye to eye, which was kind of like a very touching moment, which I, I, I kind of like really, truly, deeply grateful for. It kind of helped me rebuild a slightly different relationship and, and sort of contact with my father, which I think is, is really nice, right? Um, I think we... We rarely are intentional with the kind of relationship that we build with our parents because it's a relationship that we've had since we were kids. Agree. So it's been really nice to actually have the opportunity to sort of just change the parameters of that relationship a bit. And now we're like man to man looking eye to eye, which is which is very strange. Obviously, he's still my dad and, and all that, but but yeah. I completely agree with that. My my relationship with my dad's changed actually dramatically over the last 18 months. Oh, tell me more. Um, I don't know. I think we just... I think I took the whole like intimate side of the relationship mm. for granted. Like we rarely ever showed any sort of like, we, there was no intimate gestures, for example, mm. like a hug. Yeah. I, I never. <laughs> um, and then he got, it was actually, he got ill last year um, and he had an operation and then he got COVID and he was like in really bad way. Sorry to hear that. He, he's, he's, he's okay now, but. It was at that moment where I was like, fuck, I'm close to you, losing you here. And like, we never hug. I never yeah. tell you, like, I love you. I never, yeah. these simple, this simple crap, which, um, it's not crap. This simple <laughs> stuff, which we kind of fly by the seats of our pants so often. And we always take it for granted. 100%. And it, I think it's also the same in, in business. Like, yeah. I, we can, be so focused on the story we're telling to investors or the story <laughs> we're telling to the outside world or in our own little world on product or yeah. in design or in like customer support. And actually we never, it, we rarely ever turn around and go to our, our, our employees, fuck me, you did such a good job there. Mm. And actually go deeper than yeah. well done. Yeah, being being specific with feedback, I think, is is something that I'm trying to get better at. But I think naturally my personality type is just to see the flaws in everything. Mm. So it, it takes How has that impacted other people around you? I think it, it 
it takes them a while for them to like appreciate that. Mm. And I think it's because I don't know, like 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 we started talking about, um, I guess like childhood and upbringing. I think I didn't really have much positive encouragement from my parents. In, really, in or, or at least I might have, but I didn't receive it for whatever reason. Mm. Um, didn't compute. Yeah, uh, potentially. Um, and I think off the back of that, I guess I was just. I was. I always knew that I had to rely on myself, and the way that I knew to kind of like best grow is to be very self-critical. So I'm the kind of person where like, I want to go to like a PT and I want them to shout at me. I want them to like make me feel small because then I that gives me like the umph to like fight back, which is quite strange, right? Um, there's some people who's like, no, no, no. I want my PT to be encouraging and supporting and caring. It's like, no, no. I'm I'm actually pretty happy if someone tells me that you know. I'm a slow piece of shit, and I need to run faster than the treadmill. I think that that tends to be a lot more motivating. Which I don't know. We could. <laughs> I don't know where that places me, but but no, but that's super interesting. Like, you're a very, very deep, reflective guy. That's the one thing I can <laughs> say. Knowing you for two years now, a bit longer than that, actually, um, and we're actually similar age. Mm. You're 28, 29. Yeah, 28. Yeah, so I'm 28 next month, right? And Happy birthday for next month. Thank you very much, June the 25th, for anybody listening to this who wants to send me a birthday card. <laughs> um, if, if somebody was, asked, was to ask yeah. me, who is the most self-reflective and um, who, who's the person that you know in this world who's reflected the most at our age or in a similar bracket yeah. about who they are, and has done something about it. Yeah, I would say you. That's very kind. But you are you, you. You're just a cut above everybody else that I I know or have met in terms of understanding their brain through mm. pain. Yeah. What's your relationship with pain like? I love pain. Really, pain's great. Really. Yeah. Um. I have this kind of like I'm I'm, I'm a bit autistic, right? I can tell, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, no offense. But... <laughs> no, it's all right. <laughs> That's great. Um, but like my, 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 process, my brain just works in systems. Right. Um, and I think about almost every aspect of my life as a system, even my relationship with my girlfriend, um, which to, to some, sometimes for the benefit, sometimes to the detriment. Um, you'll have to ask her for, for feedback on that. <laughs> um, but I guess I have this kind of like mental model of, you know, you you have your... Your, your intellect, you have your body, and you kind of have your spirit. And if you really want to grow, you have to think about, like, what is the weakest link in that chain? And, you know, you see it all the time. I remember um, I did an internship in finance, um, and I was only there for, like, sort of, like, I don't know, it was, like, maybe a week, two weeks, and I was like, <laughs> never in my life am I working with these people. Um, and it's not because I think they're bad people. I just, they weren't my people, right? Just the values and the attributes and the kind of like the way that they saw the world is just very different to how I see the world. And I just like the ability to kind of like have a tribe is really important. Maybe it is again part of that immigrant upbringing and not never really feeling like you fit in, but having a close community of people is really important. And so what I realized and what I kind of saw there is that, you know, people would sacrifice their bodies because they'd be working really intensely. And so there was just like, you know, I met a bunch of senior managers and they're all like, you know, like, 10 to 20 kilograms overweight. And I'm like, how can you be operating at your peak mentally if physically you're, you know, huffing and puffing going up the stairs? And I know that that might sound a little bit mean, but I guess it's just like, what are you prioritizing in your life, right? And I guess what are the implicit and explicit trade-offs of those compromises? 
because I kind of like think to myself, I want to be in this space where if I need to, I can get up on stage and like deliver a presentation, like, you know, off, off my cuff. But also I could like sign up for a triathlon and do well and like, you know, execute and, and you know, only with like a week of training. And I feel like being able to execute well across different domains and have like the, shall we say, some of those muscles across those different points like trained and honed in, I think that's just like a incredibly strong advantage. Um, and I don't think that people often think about it in such a deep way because we over obsess about one thing and really think about how, I guess, the systems around us can be slowing us down. Mm. Interesting. What's your mental model around pain in particular? Because so, you will have a system for that, as you just said. Yeah. Uh, I think for me, it's uh, what am I going to, like, just thinking really carefully around, like, what I can learn and glean from this, um, from this bit of pain. And it comes in really different forms, right? From, like, running marathons and doing triathlons and kind of, like, going in that endurance part of your brain, which is just, like, I know I just need to keep moving for another, like, hour, two hours, three hours. That is like one type of mental switch. And there's another mental switch is like, I've got, you know, three seconds where I'm going to put twice my body weight on my back and try and do a squat. <laughs> and that's like a very different kind of pain. Mm. And I think it's really just sort of trying to figure out what is the tool set that I need for this? Is it endurance? Um, is it kind of like very, very focused mm. attention um, in something like powerlifting or weightlifting? Um, or is it actually something around, you know, with my kind of like current company, I think we're now in a great place, but it was like a, a pretty crazy whirlwind of like 18 months trying to get to this place. And I kind of immediately at the start, I said to myself, like, I need to give this two years. And lo and behold, in month 18, things started to finally come together. But having to create that system of feedback loops of saying, I'm going to go for like two years and just keep trying and commit to a set amount of time to, to, to try and learn and develop. I think that's so interesting, right? Because then you actually have, you have room to grow and experiment and really kind of go through that process instead of being like shoehorned into like, well, you know, I tried the first experiment and the first experiment failed, therefore I'm a failure and then like, yeah, yeah. let's throw in the towel, which I think is actually so common nowadays. So common, yeah. so common. Um, let's go through your yeah. mental health journey. Go on. Because that's what we first connected over. I yeah. actually read your blog yeah. in 2020. How to, if people want to read it, I will... Um, I will add it to the show notes below this episode. But how to go grow stronger in 2022, uh, sorry, in 2020 through better reflections. Yeah. That kind of like, I, I read it and I was like, fucking hell, I really, really want to talk to you. <laughs> um, nice. What's, what's your journey with mental health been like? Because it's been, it's been fucking yeah. wild. How, <laughs> I guess like, how vulnerable do you want to go here? As vulnerable as you're prepared. The name of this podcast is Vulnerable. So um, as vulnerable so as you're prepared to go. Yeah. Do you know Wim Hof? Yes. So I discovered... <laughs> well, I guess like in our circles, a lot of people do, all right? But, but you always, you always um, I guess, a little bit... Mm. Um, yeah, outside the tech world, maybe, maybe not too many people do. Mm. But um, I deeply contemplated um, committing suicide at university. Mm. Um, and I kind of like... Because I'm a weird scientist and I think about stuff, I kind of realized like, oh, okay, so like cold limits your pain threshold. So that means that, you know, if you slit your wrists in a cold bathtub, actually you'll be okay. And I never went through with it, but I got really close. Mm. Um, and it was a really dark period where like so many things were, were happening in my life. Um, the company that I was running at the time, 
you know, we went for a massive high, but also like a massive low. I lost like the trust of my team. I lost my girlfriend. Um, my grandfather passed away. I was very disconnected from my parents. At that point, I'd kind of like come back to university to try and like finish my degree. But, you know, things just like nothing was going well. And I felt completely like powerless and lost in every aspect of my life. Mm. And I think, you know, we that whole systems model, um, I guess, you know, you have like many different things that you can excel on. But if all of a sudden you're losing across every single battlefield <laughs> um, across your life, you're like, well, this is game over. Like, let's... What's the, what's the point? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that was like a really big kind of like dark moment for me. And I, I never went through it because I always thought like... Someone, how, how close did you get? Mm, I, was, I was in the bathtub with a knife. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's close. Um, and... I guess it's the thing that went through my head was that, fuck, someone has to find me here. Mm. And what a traumatic thing that might be for the person that finds me here. I need to come up with a more, less harmful <laughs> way to exit for others. A system for suicide. <laughs> Very nice. God, yeah. Um, and then I, I didn't go through with it. And, and, and somehow, you know, things took a turn and, and I actually became a lot more positive. And I just, you know. What was the moment? What was the moment? You say uh, things took a turn. There must, was there a defining moment? Honestly, I just had so much fucking work to do that I was like, you know what, like, let's just get on with some work. <laughs> and, 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 and somehow, like, you know, through doing work, through kind of like going through that pain, I guess like pain is a teacher and you, you can kind of like, um, you know, d discover yourself mm. in a deeper way. But I can't tell you what that journey out of that hole was. But I can tell you that I think, I realized at that point, there is a bug in the system. Um, there is something not quite right in my psyche for me to feel that I need to press the eject button in such a way. Mm. And... it's a nice way of putting it. I felt like, you know what? I need to understand myself better. Mm. Um, I need to be my own best caregiver. Take responsibility, right? And take responsibility for this, yeah. Because I felt like, you know, you know what? Life's happening to me and I'm not happy. Fuck it. I'm going to happen to life. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and just completely like switch the power dynamic there. Um, and then that took me into like a really interesting kind of journey of um, sort of like Vipassana and doing like, you know, silent meditation retreats and... Sorry, what's Vipassana? Oh yeah, sorry. For so, people who don't know. So for people that don't know, Vipassana is this like ancient um, sort of like Buddhist technique that got preserved um, in uh, Myanmar, Burma um, for over 2000 years. Um, and it's a very kind of like rigid structure and process, but basically you go away for 10 days, you meditate like 14 hours a day, um, you, in you do intermittent fasting, so you only eat twice a day and you speak to no one. You don't even make on eye contact with people. It's a very deep kind of like, I kind of see it as like therapy supercharged, but it's also one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life because alone with your own thoughts for 10 days. Mm, it's hard. That's hard. Because you, you just realize how chaotic you are on the inside. Because, mm. you know, you, you, we get so many distractions nowadays of our phones pinging and emails and WhatsApp and, you know, this thing coming up on Netflix or, you know, whatever it is, we've got notifications coming left, right and center. And all of a sudden you realize, wait, so I haven't spoken to anyone in four days. My mind is still going crazy. What the hell? <laughs> it's a really, it's a really kind of like piercing mirror that kind of like shines back at yourself. Mm. Um, and that was, that was, that was really great. What did you see in the mirror? Honestly, I saw that I was very angry at myself 
Um, and I was very angry at my parents. And I think I grew up angry and I didn't quite realize how angry I was at everyone around me. And I realized that anger is a great motivating seed for some things, but it also comes at a price. Mm. And, you know, <laughs> the seeds that you sow are the fruits that you will bear. Um, and I think that's actually a really important kind of like Buddhist takeaway that I took from Vipassana as well, which is that, you know, if you if you hurt someone um, or kind of like say something bad to someone, the first person that you're insulting is yourself because you're letting that negativity take over. Um, and I thought, and that was like really quite a profound shift in terms of how you let go of negativity and you share negativity with other people is actually a seed that you're sowing within yourself. And, and this might sound a little bit deep or profound, but what was really powerful about that 10-day experience is my rational brain understands this. My, my emotional kind of like limbic system is not powerful enough to comprehend that, but I was able to actually understand that from an emotional point of view. And naturally, I think our, our limbic system is actually a lot more powerful and instinctual. Mm. And I was able to create a little bit of buffer between, you know, inputs and outputs. So you insult me, and I like to think that I now have an extra maybe like split second not to insult you back. Yeah. Right? And all of a sudden, that just completely changes your emotional state and your kind of like level of tranquility that you have in your life. Mm. Agree. Very interesting. Very interesting. We're going all over the place here. No, but that's good. <laughs> I, I kind of, this is... Whilst this is a podcast about entrepreneurship, it's, it's a podcast about mental health. Yeah. And actually, um, whilst we could sit here and talk about yeah. all the different companies you've gone through, I mean, we'd be like any old entrepreneurship podcast. This is true. And we're not. Right. Um, or at least I hope we're not going to be. Yeah. Um, you went on this retreat. Mm. Was it an immediate moment of like aha that light bulb moment or did you come back and you're like mm, i really need to sit with this yeah. even more well i think it's like um it's like anything right and again going back to systems just because that's how my my mind and <laughs> world operates mm. it's all great to have these revelations but until you actually put it into practice and integrate it into your day-to-day -day lifestyle into your day-to-day interactions with your friends and your family and your colleagues, it's worth shit, mm. right? Mm -hmm. We've all read the self-help books. Why aren't we fixed yet? It's because we haven't put it into practice. We've read the information, we've absorbed the information, and we've done nothing with it. Or we, we, we've, we've, we've tried to integrate it, but we maybe haven't gone to the level that we need to. Okay. What did you put into place? I think what I really try to put into place and, and and I think it's it's a journey right like I, I would say that I I still have a very long way to go in all of this but at least I feel like I have a mental model of appreciating where I am on that cycle um and I think it's assuming the the others have best intentions and their bullshit actually has nothing to do with you and what I mean by their bullshit has nothing to do with you like um you know, sometimes like people get caught up in little dramas, like there'll be like a, a birthday party or a barbecue and there'll be a group of friends there and someone will be having a bad day. And then I overheard this conversation even yesterday where it's like, oh, you know, well, she was just like a bit moody and she didn't speak to me today. Like, you know, and 
I kind of, I was just kind of realizing that why are we getting caught up in this drama? Maybe that has nothing to do with you. Maybe she had like a bad day. Maybe she didn't have enough sleep. Like, why are you spending time like contemplating this, this, this like quite banal kind of like factor, right? Um, and I think trying to be more generous with like other people have the best intentions. And when stuff goes astray, it's more to do with them than it is to do with you. I think it's this, that's one side of it. And also the other one is just like take complete ownership of everything that's happening in your life. Mm. So create that separation from others and make sure that you yourself have the rules and the structure and the sort of like resilience to be able to look after yourself in the way that you need to. Mm. Very true. And I think COVID, and, and maybe just to go back full circle into that like article, the reason why I wrote that article is because I felt like going on these meditation retreats and, and you know, like everything that I've done, I try and like cultivate this like reflective set of systems. And I thought that it was things that really helped me find more tranquility and peace in my day-to-day -day life. And I thought, the least I can do is try and share it with others. <laughs> and maybe maybe someone else will find find some 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 help in that. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's all these like weird little models that, you know, might not work for everyone, but they work for me. And that's... I'm going to read some of this... Yeah, sure. ...this um, blog, because um, it was... So, I, I reached out to you and it was life-changing for me in terms of I've implemented a few things that you've written there. It's a big statement. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you've had, you've had that impact. Um, this part, this journey has taken me to some weird and wonderful places. Reading over 50 books on psychology, neuroscience and leadership. Two Vispa, uh, Vipassana. Vipassana. Vipassana yep. courses, intense 10-day silent meditation, which we've discussed. Quarterly off-sites with friends, spending one to two, three days in nature, reflecting on personal challenges and opportunities. Um, writing yearly board decks on my life and priorities. A heap of psychedelic experiments with MDMA, acid, psilocybin, DMT. A 14-week finders course focused on meditation and psychology. And most recently, writing operations manuals for myself, which break down all my values, beliefs, strengths, weaknesses, and goals. I want to focus on... God, it sounds a bit weird when you read it back out. You're like, this is a weird human. It does, yeah, 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 it does. I'll, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Um, and most people would be like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> yeah. Do you know what really made me laugh? At? Yeah. Quarterly offsites with friends. That's that's yeah. It's not. It's peculiar humans. Very peculiar. Yeah. Anyway. Different strokes for different folks. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's two things here. Yeah. Go on. A heap of psychedelic experiment experiments. Right. With MDMA, acid, psilocybin, and DMT. Yeah. And then writing operation manual for mm. myself. Um, uh, which breaks down all of my values, beliefs, strengths, weaknesses, and goals. Um, let's take number one. Yep. Uh, as you know, I'm a big advocate for altering yep. your neuroscience and your mental states to mm -hmm. have a more positive outcome. I think that yep. one of the big um, one of the big issues I have with uh, the whole campaign to not legalize drugs mm. um, is that actually. Drugs and um, hallucinogenics, MDMA, acid, psilocybin, DMT, they have, as the evidence suggests, an overwhelmingly positive outcome on and results when it comes to depression and anxiety. Yeah. When when done in the right set and setting, under supervised conditions with the right people. Yeah, not just in your front room. Yeah. Um, yeah, you pop an acid tab, no problem. Yeah. Um, what was that experience like for you? Oh. So I've, I've had this conversation, I guess, with many friends over the years. I can imagine. Because, you know, I think naturally people are curious about this stuff, right? They are. Um, 
I think what I can say is that I feel as men, we're naturally not so predisposed to being good with emotions. Mm. And I think being an Eastern European man, I was growing up with this like mental model of a man looks after the family, puts food on the table, like make sure that everyone's safe, make sure that everyone's looked after. And it's a very kind of like almost a hunter-gatherer type men mental model. But I guess a couple of things that also came along with that as you know, like a man doesn't cry, a man doesn't show emotions, all this kind of stuff. And I think in my kind of like journey of having to live away from my parents when I was really young, I remember my mum, again, having a conversation, like as adults, you know, like a couple of years ago. And she said like one of the toughest things that she went through when she was with my dad in, in the UK and I was back home in Bulgaria is that I didn't actually want to speak to my parents. Hmm. And the reason why I didn't want to speak to my parents is because speaking to them acknowledged the fact that they're not there. Hmm. And that made me sad. And the way that I dealt with things as a five-year-old was apparently I just pretend that that doesn't exist. Really? Yeah. Interesting. And so I kind of went through this process where I learned that my model of dealing with emotions is to package them up, put them on the shelf, label them, and then not address them. Yeah. And so I grew up for the longest time not really being able to like access much of the emotional spectrum. And I think I, I still struggle to do that to this day. But one of the wonderful things that I discovered about psychedelics in particular, is that for me, it at least allows me to get more in touch with my emotions, which is like like anything, right? I think it's a muscle, it's a skill, it's something that people are, some people are more naturally predisposed to and others aren't. And so for me, it allowed me to actually feel stuff in a much more deep and meaningful way. And that to me was almost like a, like a lighthouse at the edge of the shore trying to like guide me to safety. Like, you know, I think the first time that I did MDMA, I was like, oh, this is what like real love for your friends feels like. I agree. I've done, I did it a lot at uni. Right. Um, um, and my... In recreational settings or therapeutic settings? No, no, no. In recreational settings. Right. Yeah, yeah. Just in clubs. Mm. But the feeling that was given to me by MDMA pills, mm. um, not so much Coke, but. <laughs> really, MDMA and pills mm. was extraordinary. I, I can't, you, you can't, you can't obviously replicate it unless you, mm. unless you take it. But um, it is all about how you access that deep emotional mm. love, um, the kind of lust for yeah. for, a, for connection side mm. of human nature yeah. when you're in that moment. Um, I have to say that, that by the way, just just to call you out on that, I think. That's a bit of a self-limiting belief that you just put out there. Interesting. Which is, you said you can't recreate that without the drug. I think that's... A... Sorry, you can't recreate that feeling? Okay, no, sorry. Because I, I, yeah. I have experienced that feeling in meditation. Interesting, okay. And like, really? that's completely natural, right? Really? Um, so I th the way this, this is what I mean to it, right? Like, it's, it's a lighthouse. It guides you to safety on the shore, at least for me, and kind of some kind of emotional anchor of what good feels like, what bad feels like. Mm. But then... I think you have to believe that you can be that person in your day-to-day -day life. I think if you don't believe that, you'll never put in the effort of actually moving forward in that direction. Without taking... Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. And I see everything as a tool, right? And, and ultimately, at, at some point, you're going to have to put the tool down mm. and just, like, you know, operate in your day-to-day -day life. Mm. No. Okay, I get what you're saying. Um, can you remember taking them? Can you remember... 100%, them? yeah. Really? I remember really? my first experience with... Really? Every drug, yeah. Really? Um... 
I was I was extremely fortunate actually, and to this day I'm really grateful for my set of friends at university because I was heavily against drugs, right? Like I um like growing up in Bulgaria, it's like we 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 drink, right? Like alcohol is a thing. We drink, we drink a lot, and that's our thing. But for me, drugs was just like, oh no, alcohol's okay, but drugs like that, that that's like yeah, that's a no-no. That's an open door into a really bad world. Yeah. And and it was really weird. And and then like I guess the friends that I had, they were like really respectful of the fact that I didn't want to take drugs. But then it kind of came to this moment of second year of university where um, my friends came to me and they said, hey, we're going to this event. Um, you know, we're going to take MDMA during it. It would really mean the world for us if you would do that with us. But, you know, it's happening in kind of like a week or two's time. Like, take your time, do some research, find out if you're comfortable with it. And if you are, like, please come in and join us. But even if not, we'd just love for you to be there. And that kind of like set in setting was so powerful in helping me get psychologically ready and comfortable with taking a substance that I know would alter my worldview. And naturally being a nerd, I then went down the rabbit hole of figuring out, oh, okay, so serotonin, like, you know, impacts your synapses, you know, changes the thresholds. And just like went all, that, all the way down that rabbit hole of really understanding on like the molecular level, like how does stuff actually work? Um, I, I guess as you, as you do. Um, and I think that I'm just so grateful that that was my first experience because I think that just gave me such a nice and loving and kind of like intentional way of entering this. And I guess the more that then I learned about this, the more I started appreciating the value of setting, setting, right? Like intentionality and making sure that you have like the right environment where you feel safe. Mm. Um, and I think all these things are are really important. And if, if they don't go right, I think you can also get yourself into, into a little bit of trouble with some of this stuff. You can. Which is, which is why it's, I think if you're, if you're ever going to use these tools, I think it's important to know how to use these tools safely. Mm. No, I agree. I agree. Um, second, most mm. recently, writing an operations manual for myself, which breaks down all of my values, beliefs, strengths, weaknesses, and goals. We've covered a little yeah. bit around um, your kind of beliefs. Yeah. What was the contents of the operation manual that you wrote for yourself? Like, let, let's start with my values. Mm. What are your values? I think I can... Well, this is the thing, right? Well, we can have a conversation about them now, but actually, if I bring up the deck, it will be much easier to go through them in a bit of a structured way. <laughs> yeah, go for it. I think... You know there's this whole thing about goals, which is if you, if you don't write your goals, you're like less likely to achieve them? Yeah. Well, I think it's similar in terms of like character and personality. Like if you don't try and spend the time defining who you want to be as a person, yeah. you're highly unlikely to achieve it. Um, similar for like building a company and setting a culture, right? If you, if you don't try and be intentional around like what you reward and what you punish inside your organization, you're, it's very unlikely that you'll be able to bring people together and make them come work together effectively. So this is slightly outdated and it's something that I'll probably need to go back and, and refresh and review. Um, but I kind of just took a, a second to really think through like all the various different life experiences that I've had. And I think at the time of writing this, I had, you know, lived in Hong Kong, lived in Berlin, lived in London. Um, and I guess, you know, worked for loads of different kind of like companies, startups, um, you know, spent like the, a lot of time in hospitality as well, like, you know, cleaning toilets and like waiting tables. So I was just sort of like trying to think about there's so many different people and so many different experiences that I've had what, where have I felt the most authentically me 
And where have I felt like that's actually a real value and asset? Because I find that there's something that we naturally do as humans, which is like put on a facade. Mm -hmm. And I feel that when it comes to working with people, the more time you have to, like the more energy you have to spend in holding up that facade, the less time and energy you spend on doing the actual work. And so for me, this was like, hey, I want to work with aware, self-aware, mature people. How can I take a first step in sort of trying to define that for myself? Um, and so, yeah, so I kind of went through and I just kind of like really tried to think through what are all the principles that I try and live by that just consistently show up in my life and all the different work that I've done and all the different relationships I've had. So yeah, we can, we can go through some of them or at least hopefully at a high level, that kind of is a good intro. Mm, very good intro. Um, values. Okay, values. So values, operating principles, um, always look for the 28 you play. Um, I was a, I'm a, I would class myself as a generalist and for the longest time, that made me feel very like insecure about stuff. Same here. Because it's like, well, you know, I like engineering, but I'm not that good at it. I like design, but I'm not that good at it. <laughs> I like business, but yeah, fuck, I'm not really good, that good at it either. And I was like, fuck, how do, I, how do I make sense of all of this, right? Like, how do I actually deliver something of value? And then I kind of realized, wait, hold on a minute. I've got all this kind of like multidisciplinary knowledge in my head. What if I just try and figure out where is the 2080 play and everything? Where can I get the most bang for my buck from the limited amount of insight that I have mm. and find those crossover points where you can really create a lot of leverage? And I think like if you're playing with leverage in a kind of like a very authentic and real way, you, you get to much more fun outcomes, right? Because yeah. you get to be yourself and you also get to find that, you know, founder product market fit. You, you, you find that stuff where you are uniquely placed at solving this problem because you have a, an experience that very few other people can, can replicate or, or have. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Lots of sense. So yeah, how, how do you want to do this? I have to go through more of them or any that particularly stand out? Um, maybe, maybe actually I can just double click on one that I think would be quite interesting for, for us it. to talk to through. The yardstick is potential. Always try and imagine thing, what things could be, not what they are. I'm driven by big, bold visions of the future and I'm really happy or satisfied with something because I'm always trying to tweak or enhance it so it can reach its full potential. Same as me. Great expectations, great, great capabilities. I think this is a oddly entrepreneurial and also pain. <laughs> like this is leaning into pain very much so. I, I completely agree. I've <clears throat> I get the most pain from yeah. my journey as an entrepreneur in this section. Yeah. Um, yeah, but because we have these big bold visions, we kind of can plot the course as to how we think mm. we could get there, and it makes a lot of sense. Going back mm. to your model, um, we are always trying to tweak it, but sometimes, most of the time, mm. our expectations of reality yeah. are really warped. And it causes me a lot of pain because I'm like, this is where we want to go, but it's, we're going too slow. Mm. This is where we, this is what I want to do on the product side, but mm. actually we've got to tick off this, this, yeah. and this, and it's going to take X amount of time. Yeah. And also then we've got to build the other parts of the business too. And mm. this is causing me internal hassle. I call <laughs> it hassle because pain is, it's very, um, 
we can flick. I think we can flick too much in terms of ecstasy and then pain, and then yeah. it becomes normalized. Yeah, mm. I think la- like how you label certain emotions and experiences can dramatically change your your view on them. Yeah. Um, but I think particularly on that one, there's there's something that I've actually been thinking about recently, just on that point, because you what you said sparked something in me, and it's that recently. I've tried to really change my whole perspective around if you want endurance and longevity, which is my goal, I need to balance the journey with the destination. Interesting. And I feel like if you're really going after something that's audacious, I don't want to be a person that burns myself out or others in the process. And naturally, there's always going to be like high tension and high stress. But my job is to try and minimize that as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So I want to operate in a way where I'm pushing at 80% consistently every week. But I'm very intentional and selective of when I go into like hyperdrive and push at 120. Really? Yeah. I, and typically on average, when are those moments where you go into hyperdrive and, and into 100? Like for me, I guess it was last month, like doing fundraising, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, first meeting in the morning at 8 a.m. and last meeting with the US at, say, like 11 p.m. And you've got like 10 investor pitches sort of like throughout the day and you've got to prepare for each one of them, have some insight on what's going on. Like it's just, it's, it's very high energy and high intensity just to kind of like go through that process. Mm. But also you kind of have to bring your A game every single day because like you don't want to be meeting someone for the first time and they're like... Yeah, hi, you know, mm. it's a bit late. Sorry, I'm tired. You've got to be like, this is who I am. This is what we're doing. I'm excited. Are you excited? Like, can we, like, is there alignment in our world vision? Mm. Makes sense. Can we go on your strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, sure. Strengths, passion, generalist skill set, pragmatic and efficient. Uh, just on the general, generalist skill set, how, how have you come to terms with, because... The basis of my question here is is actually my own experience of being a generalist. Sure. I think I do loads, but then I do nothing. <laughs> um, and that I kind of fly by each week and I'm like, what have I actually done this week? I don't know, but we've done lots. Um, it causes me a lot of issues inside mm. being a generalist because there's part of me that kind of wishes I was just really good at some one thing. Mm. And I was just like, you can nail this. Typically coding, right? I, I yeah. just wish I could do it, and I was like, "Fuck, I can do this. This, I'm fucking skilled at this." Yeah, you and a lot of other people, buddy. Yeah, man. Um, <laughs> like, how have you come to terms with being a generalist, and how have you negated the uncomfortable nature of being a generalist in like day to day? I think maybe let me throw it back at you, but. Do you feel like you put together like a strategic prioritized set of like what are like the two or three things that are like top priority that I need to get done this week? Yes, but often those don't get hit or I do get them hit. But I guess it's more, there are priorities each week, mm. of course. Some some of them get shifted. Mm. Um, the natural day-to-day course of, of, of life as a founder, but... Mm. Um, It's a good question because I haven't thought about it like that. So, so I'd say that it's a problem of strategy rather than skill. Interesting. Um, because I think that the value of a generalist skill set in some ways is that you can, you can find shortcuts, right? Yeah. 
like you're not good at marketing, you're not good at copy, great, go on Fiverr, five someone, find someone who can like put their campaign for you, right? Correct. Like, and, or, you know, like you're really good at coding, great. You know, just like build a little scraper that goes out and like collects all the data for you and that's like your, your customer research, right? Um, I think it's being like thorough and specific with what outcomes you want, but being open to how you achieve those outcomes. I think for me, that's probably been the biggest unlock that I've been able to find, which is I know where we need to go, how we get there doesn't necessarily matter in terms of delivering this task. Like for example, today, right? I could have come to meet you, you could have come to my house, like we still would have gotten the podcast done. Yes. And are you just tied to like, well, no, you know, it has to be in the studio, otherwise the sound quality won't be right and it's going to be all a mess. You know, we had to move rooms, fine. But I still think like, you know, hopefully the sound's okay. Yeah. It sounds great in my ears. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, weaknesses. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll let you go through. Pick out your... Pick out... Okay, uh, do you know what we'll do? I'm going to say the top line of the weaknesses. I would like you to pick out the ones that bother you the most mm. and have the biggest impact on your mental health. <sighs> um, overly rational and unemotional. Uh, working in isolation which is also an interesting one because I don't see that as a weakness, but anyway. <sighs> Humility and putting the ego aside, very interesting. Delegating work. Mm. Um, inability to deal with office politics. Yeah, I like that. Impatient as hell and spelling. Yeah. Which of those cause you the most? I'd say that, um, yeah, spelling I really don't care about, but it does trigger some people. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm just joking. Um, I think it, like we, we all go through different phases of life, right? And I guess like the, the journey of a founder is one where you're like constantly switching gears. Mm. Like, you know, you're in build mode, you're in hiring mode, you're in fundraising mode and like everything in between and lots of others that, that, that aren't in that simple like three point list. Um, so I think it's really important to be able to kind of understand what, what are the points of fragility or weakness in my current approach and... Where, where are my blind spots like naturally going to be? So I think right now we're a two-man team. Delegating work is not actually that much of a problem because it's just two of us. Who am I going to delegate to, right? Is Caliper really two, only two, yeah. two people? It's just two of us for now. Fuck me. Um, so from that point of view, that's not really a problem right now. As we start growing, if I'm not delegating, I'm not giving people responsibility. If I'm not giving people responsibility, they don't feel empowered. Mm. They don't feel empowered. They don't have ownership. If they don't have ownership, my retention and like, you know, sort of like development of talent just sucks. Mm. So I think it's really around your strengths and your weaknesses are going to like hinder you or kind of advance you in different moments. And I think again, back to like self-reflections, that's why it's really important to understand like what phase of the race are you in and like what are the blind spots that are really going to like knock you out right now. Mm. Okay. Sorry, I realize that's a really non-specific answer. And you haven't answered my question. I know, I haven't answered your question. I'd say that right now being overly rational and unemotional has probably been, I guess, like one of the challenges that I'm, I'm really trying to like work more intentionally on. Um, I find that like working remotely makes me just a slightly colder human being. Interesting. Which I think for my romantic relationship and even for my work relationship sometimes is not ideal. No. Um, so yeah, I'd probably say the top one is at the moment probably my... Causing the most pain. 
Yeah, and working in isolation as well. We're, we're quite lucky where James and I, um, we, we co-locate or try and co-locate at least once a week, which work helps. But yeah, that was a long COVID period where it was like, cool, I haven't seen a human for like a while. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. But you're, you're the classic introvert, so actually that, that kind of, you're, you're, you understand, uh, mm. from what I can tell, mm. you kind of like, mm, I really do like being in isolation, but also I equally understand the power of being together. But, but, but think back to like my very first like value, right? Mm. Which is around like finding that leverage, finding that 28 you play. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that I'm probably like best at is like I can speak to lots of different people across lots of different disciplines. I guess that's like product management 101. Yes. And same as me. Exactly, right? And, and I think what that allows you to do is like, hey, 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 like it's great that you're going down in this direction, but have you considered that maybe you could, you could try just adjusting things a little bit and all of a sudden you unlock like that person to like really move forward at a faster pace. That's what I really crave. Like me and a couple of people and a whiteboard trying to like solve a problem together. I live for that. Really? Yeah. And I find that, you know, no matter how good Miro and Zoom are, it's, it's still, or Miro, I don't know how you pronounce it. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, still, it's still not quite perfect. Or Fig Jam. Or Fig Jam, yes. Mm. We're, we're, we're not, um, no one's sponsoring you, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. No. Um, let's talk about Caliper. Yeah. Because you, you've been building it yeah. on the very, very, very down low yeah. for the last two years. I didn't realize it was that long. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird journey. Um, I guess we, in this latest iteration, which is what we call, I guess, like Caliper 2.0, um, J James and I, my, my current co-founder, we, we only properly started at the end of last year and sort of, I'd say, full-time January. Um, so we've only been kind of going for a little while. Um, but before that, it was... Yeah, it was it was a long period where you know had a had a a slight conflict and and, and sort of like a a departure with my, a previous co-founder that I was working with last year. So yeah, it was a on Caliper. Yeah, Caliper One. <laughs> so it was it was a bit of a. And what was Caliper One? Um, so Caliper One, we we really wanted to build a. Um, <laughs> it was really funny the the way it kind of came together. So I I was doing some product consulting. I was kind of like just you know parachuting into early stage companies, helping out with product. COVID hit, and I realized that I needed to figure out a good way of building a sustainable kind of like customer, like sales pipeline. And I kind of realized one of the biggest challenges that you naturally have working with startups is not everyone can pay you. And everyone has like, you know, a tight budget and all this kind of stuff. So I was like... And everyone wants to work on equity. Yeah. Um, and so... Doesn't pay the mortgage. No, 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 no. Yeah. All, all, all the challenges that we're, we're all too familiar about, <laughs> or with, I should say. Um, but yeah, and I kind of had this strategy of, wait, why don't I just get closer to VCs and use VCs as kind of like my distribution channel? Because I think naturally Europe is still a little bit behind the US, if not quite far behind the US in terms of product management. So if I use investors as my distribution channel, this would be great. And then COVID came and lots of my founder friends, you know, got in some really interesting pickles with their investors, you know, bridge rounds, down rounds, people closing down, having to fire people. And no one was really 100% confident on how they're managing their investors. Um, so I was like, hey, why don't I write a bit of content on this and we'll put it out there and then, you know, that would hopefully be a way to drum up some interest, to build some relationships and, you know, build that, that, that sales pipeline. And what ended up happening was that it kind of all snowballed into like this, this like little book that I wrote um, on investor relations. And off the back of that, I kind of realized, wait a minute, like the actual infrastructure that we use to run venture is pretty broken. 
Um, and I realized there's a huge opportunity to actually help investors in a slightly more productized way manage their portfolios. And yeah, Caliper V1 was literally like an investor relations tool that was all around helping founders build the best possible relationships and partnerships they could with their investors and doing so in the most efficient and effective way possible. Um, we chose not to take some money. Um, we, we had the offer to do that. Um, my CTO came on board. We decided we could do a lot of stuff ourselves. We decided to bootstrap. We bootstrapped during COVID. Um, a lot of stuff happened. I kind of went through a lot of my savings. Um, he unfortunately had a couple of like medical issues, which like really had an impact on his like physical health um, and obviously his psychological health off the back of that. So towards the end of like last year, I was kind of like nearly ready to kind of throw in the towel. And then, yeah, sort of reconnected with, with James, my, my current co-founder, who's an old friend from school. We kind of started talking about things, realized we had a very similar kind of like worldview. Does he code? Uh, yes, he's a, he's a data scientist. Um, so he, he, sure. he codes data stuff. Um, there, there, there's still some gaps that we're, we're currently recruiting for. But um, yeah, we, it was really interesting just to kind of like go through that whole kind of like roller coaster ride of trying something, it not quite working, having to, having so much sunk cost of like from a time and finance point of view. And yeah, be lucky enough to, to find a new partner and kind of like discover a new kind of like energy and enthusiasm for Caliper 2 to then be able to actually move through it and now actually be in a pretty phenomenal place. But yeah, like I said, I'm so happy that I said, you know, I'm going to give myself two years. And like, I was, I was running up the clock. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, I was very close to like throwing in the towel. But yeah, here we are still, it's, it's, it's still working and it's, it's going well. Interesting. Um, you're a non-technical founder. Yeah. Yeah. There's a gap between technical and non-technical founders, which sure. I find incredibly frustrating, whereby we have a certain set of expectations, but also until a mm. lot of the kind of yep. platforms built, like, uh, yeah, we can do a finite amount of things, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how do you process that um, process? How do you process that process? Because <laughs> if you're a non-technical founder, it's fucking frustrating. So... I'd say I'm I'm fortunate enough to be more technical than most, maybe. Right. So I guess I, I used to code back in the day. I used to be a full-time engineer, yeah. uh, like 2012, 2013. So I've got a lot of fundamental knowledge there, I guess, that already helps just to speak the same language. But also I think as a natural engineer by background um, and as someone who's just thinks, likes numbers, likes systems, likes processes... I'm really comfortable in like working with engineers and speaking to people. And I find that the most important thing that you kind of like need to get to is like, how do you develop a common language? If you, if you find a common language, you can kind of like, you know, move through quite a lot. And you can, if you can then also build that in like a common mission and a common way of figuring out how you will work together, what things you value, what things you don't value. If you set up some of those fundamental building blocks together and you get everyone on the same page in terms of this is how we speak, this is what this is what the big vision is, this is what we're aiming for in the next month, this is what we're compromising on, this is what we're not willing to compromise on. You actually create a lot of parameters. You, you, in some ways, you create a frame with a little bit of a sketch where then other people go in and, and, and paint, right? Do you do you do that every month still? Um, not every month. I think you do it as you need to, and like again, you get right? that. In, you kind of get that instinct, that feeling when you really do need to build those boundaries again. I'm kind of yeah. at that stage with Luna at the moment. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's um, 
I think we're 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 late. We've got we've got enough runway, but equally, um, I think whilst we can raise money on traditional runway, mm. um, and this is a conversation I had with with um, Janos mm. Barbaris, one of the previous guests, was it's milestone based versus yeah. Yeah. like runway based because actually you could hit your milestones within three months, and actually you then need to go raise another yeah. five million to take you to the next milestone. Yeah, but it's speed and the kind of speed of execution. I think we've um, we've Andy and I, my co-founder, have made some made some mistakes in the mm. last eighteen months. The best yeah. time to make them because yeah. we're still alive, and we're still yeah. here, but it it slowed us down. Yeah. But but James, what in everything that you've said there, you've you've kind of like emphasised speed. So have you? You know, you got speed, quality, and time. Prioritizing speed. How have you? How have you then thought about time uh, and quality, and cost? So that's really interesting. I think the first year, mm. January twenty, yeah, first mm, first thirteen months, mm. we were all about speed, mm. and I think quality mm. took um, took a hit, and that was the first big mistake we've made. Right. We've now shifted, I think, and this is me getting vulnerable as well, um, and I'm hoping people are listening to this because, and some people will get in contact because um, it will be a nice, like, accountable moment. Yeah. But I think we've now shifted to revising slightly the kind of promises we made to certain investors mm. at in the last round because we were slight, we were overly ambitious mm. to try and hit that speed target, right? In that certain time mm. period, but actually the quality has been reduced, mm. and I think actually what we ne now need to do and what we are doing, um, really with the advent of hiring Sun, our chief product mm. officer, um, who is just phenomenal. But um, what we've now turned around and, and done is going actually we don't need this to take over the dog training market in the next year. Mm. The problems are still going to be there because we are miles ahead of others. Yeah. But actually, we need to go back to the drawing board slightly and go for quality, mm. reduce the size of our beta testing group. Yeah. You don't need to have thousands of people on it. But even yeah. those 50 users that we mm -hmm. have... Yeah, and you're like, that sounds great. Yeah, you're like, actually, I'm getting so much more because I've got quality time with these guys. Yeah. We've still got money in the bank. We can, yeah. we can increase burn rate. We can, or we can decrease it as we like. Yeah, we might have a a, a two month delay on seeing like the effects of that, but it's quality that we're now going for because actually that's gonna we think is gonna enhance the seed round later on. Again, we need to give the engineers and sun time. Yeah, time is money, um, and so right whether we raise another bridge or whether we raise another angel round, mm. slightly higher valuation, but nothing too mm. like in uncomparable. Yeah. But that's been that's been a real internal hassle that I've yeah. been I've been going through the last three months. I mean, I think if it if it's any consolation whatsoever, I I'm think sure it will be. It's a it's it's a classic thing that we we all struggle with, right? I think one of the most interesting things about I guess, at least to share from from my side, I guess one one of the things that I found is I've 
I feel very fortunate that I'm now feel like I have the incredible gift and fortune to be able to like be working on my life's work. Yeah. I feel like this business is something that hopefully I'll be able to, you know, work on for the next 20, 30 years. So in the space, when you think about it in the context of 20 to 30 years of like the rest of my career, does like three or four months actually matter? If you, if you lay down the right foundations and you focus on how can you actually make sure that you're... It's not about growing from like zero to a hundred really quickly. It's about finding a velocity that you can operate at for kind of like, you know, months or years that is sustainable. And I feel like there's something actually quite perverse that I find in the startup ecosystem, which is... I don't know, like sometimes I, I listen to... To, to founders, you know, who, who are on their journey for the first time. And it sounds like between the founders and their investors, it's some kind of like weird get rich quick scheme, <laughs> which is like you hit off like these five things that you need to do. You'll raise the next round. You raise the round after that. You'll get some secondaries. And I'm like, is, I'm not really sure this is how the system works. And if it is, I'm not really sure I want to be complicit in that particular system. Mm. So let me define my own game and the, the rules that I get to play with the people that I want to play with and try and execute against that. I feel like so many people that I speak to who are trying to step into entrepreneurship, they're telling me around like how, you know, their boss sucks, their job sucks, their company's not going anywhere, like all these frustrations they have. And then they have this opportunity to build something for themselves. And they don't spend the time of thinking, okay, well, how do I actually make sure I don't make the same mistakes? What have I done to learn from my supposedly terrible boss that I'm just kind of come out with, that I'm going to make sure I'm at least two times or three times better than that for the employees, or at least not even make the same mistakes. Mm. And again, right, going back to reflections, I think this is, this is why I find this to be such an important habit and ritual in my life, because otherwise I just feel like you let yourself off on so much shit. Mm. Mm. I agree. Does that make sense? It does make a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. I, what just took me back then was... Um, was it's okay to go slow. And I think that's where we made the mistake last yeah. year at Luna was mm. we just sacrificed everything for speed. Mm. And actually that fucked us because it didn't fuck us because we're, we're yeah. fine yeah, yeah. financially. We got, we, got, we got money in the bank, but yeah, we'll need to raise another mm -hmm. 200, 250, keep mm -hmm. it small and lean. That will give us probably another, another 10 months. Mm -hmm milestone is to have a very high quality yeah. software product you might not have thousands of users but actually even if you've got 500 i think our mm. milestone is hitting that 500 user base mm. because the the dog training industry has a smaller tam yeah yeah that's where investors the classic vc line that i've heard recently has been like <laughs> your tam's not very big is is this a vc backed business and look, be honest. I'll be honest with you. It's probably not your unicorn. However, there is a reason why you can shift away from the software product to actually incorporate more consumerism. That's where I see the dog training industry going, is how actually, when I first started this business, I wanted to connect a dog owner with a dog trainer and have yep. that experience managed because that was my problem. Actually, the problem then through just um, intense user research yeah. 
was this is all well and good, but actually this is a marketplace, right? Like, yeah, yeah. The supply, the supply wasn't right. The demand was mm. there. The supply wasn't right. So actually, mm. we had to build a tool to solve supply. Yeah. Make it simple for that supply to be able to shift into a marketplace approach. Yeah. It's just time. It's marrying that that kind of internal impatience. Yeah. With feeling comfortable. Mm feel comfortable with the uncomfortable. My uncomfortable is I'm impatient like you yeah. and I want to see results and it's taken us months and it will continue to take us months yeah. and I will have to raise more money for it because we need more time. Yeah. But time is okay. And actually accepting time is okay has been a real challenge. Yeah. I think it's it's so fascinating, right? Because I think also the media just does this like horrendous job of you 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 open up TechCrunch or any other kind of like tech publication. It's like all you hear of is like the fundraising rounds. Yeah, and you feel like okay, like everyone is around me is like raising money and they're doing really well and all this kind of stuff. And it it it's so easy to be distracted by that world and to have these like really strange notions of what the standards and the norms are. When in reality, like I can't I can only name like one or two founders that actually enjoy fundraising. And yet, I so, can't name any. Yeah. I don't enjoy it. No, but 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 also, I think like there's just so many other aspects like that in company building where what you read about and what you see is very different from the reality, and that's kind of what I find most, I guess, sad to some extent about entrepreneurship and its current state, which is, I feel like, so many more people are coming into this world, which is phenomenal. I love this world. This I is know. my world. This is my friends. But at the same time, they don't really appreciate the cost Correct. it takes to enter. I've lost friends, I've lost relationships, I've lost like a fuck ton of money, lots of gray hair. Like, you know, and, and I think every single founder that I know that's also been through the journey, whether they've been successful or not, they've also paid exactly the same price. Mm. Um, and that's why I think there's such kinship between like, you know, founders, especially ones that have been around for a while that have, you know, been through that roller coaster journey once or twice and they kind of know the pain. You you can create that immediate connection with people, which I think is so powerful. But I think the the media landscape today, it it creates these expectations and these standards of what being an entrepreneur is about and, and the milestones that matter when I don't know, I just think that it's it's not quite right. No. It's not. Where do you think it goes? Honestly, I think it's, it's like society operates based on like certain kind of like ratios and proportions of people, right? Like if we had a presidential like campaign like in the US and like every single American was put up for like to, <laughs> to go in the process, that would be an absolute nightmare, right? Like the world operates because certain people, you know, like cutting hair, certain people like, you know, being doctors, certain people like being mechanics and... I feel like the glorification of entrepreneurship is putting a lot more people into that path. And I think that's great. I think everyone can be an entrepreneur. But again, it, I think it's should everyone be an entrepreneur? And what are the real reasons why you're going on that journey? And what are you hoping to find at the end of that rainbow? Because if it's money, there's much easier ways to make money in life. Oh, yeah. And if you think that money's going to solve your problems... No, it's not. Um, I, I think most rich people that I know have just as similar problems as, as, as you and I do. Um, you're, you just buy a different set of problems with your cash. <laughs> exactly. 
And so I think it's it's how can we help people be a little bit more honest um, and reflective and sincere around what they really want from their life and what they're prepared to give up to, to, to get it. And I think this is one of the reasons why I wanted to come on here and have a conversation with you because I knew that based on previous conversations, we could have a open conversation around what it really takes and what the realities and the hardships of building a business are. And, you know, we've both woken up in the middle of the night, like worried around what's going to happen. We've both had, you know, really difficult employee conversations that have just like, you know, made, made, made it so that, you know, we're staying up late in the night, struggling to fall asleep. And, um, you know, we've all had like cash challenges where we're like, fuck, are we going to make payroll this month? Like, none of this stuff is easy. No, it's hard. <laughs> and nothing in your education system actually prepares you for it as well. No, I mean, that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> yeah. That's um, a whole different podcast. But one thing we should talk about, mm. actually, because it's one of my big bugbears. Um, just school was shit for most people. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to get into it. No, no, no. Um, Costa, I cannot thank you enough, my friend, for coming on, getting vulnerable, talking about a load. Of, I mean, I always come away from our conversations and we actually didn't speak for probably a good six months, yeah, maybe longer. it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, but I think good people come and go in your life, um, but also when they do come back in, it's a real joy. This has been a fucking pleasure. <laughs> um, as I said in the middle of the, the episode, you are one of those people who I see as a real like beacon of of interest. <laughs> you get deep and I love that. And I think what you put out to the world, even when you don't put out a huge amount, but when you do, has impact. I mean, that blog, literally I had to get in contact with you because it changed my life. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're just a breath of fresh air. Oh, who's really gone through gone through a load of shit, but you're still here to tell the tale. That's the most important thing. Thanks, James. That's that's really kind. Um, I think it's. I'm just hoping that that people uh, you pro might not agree with everything that I've said, but at least I hope to have sparked some some interesting thoughts or areas of self reflection and discovery. Because I think just the more time that we spend, I think having real, authentic, vulnerable conversations with others. I think the more we can really start finding the right way of living within this like crazy, ever-changing world, um, and especially as founders, <laughs> our world is is more chaotic than I think most. Mad, um, or or at least like you know, limit based on our limited experience, that's kind of what what it definitely feels like. Um, and so I think the more that we can have honest, vulnerable conversations with, with our friends about what what stuff really keeps us you know up at night, and and what stuff really gives us joy and meaning, and how we can celebrate the wins and commiserate the losses um, and kind of go together in a little bit more of a community. I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm here for. And, and hopefully people have uh, found some, some stuff interesting here. Top man. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, James.